the rational part of me won't quite let me go into like a oh yeah of course fairies are real world Mm -hmm. but the dreamer and the romantic in me doesn't want necessarily to live in a world where fairies don't exist i'm leanne welcome to strippers and sages today i am sharing a conversation with a dear dear friend of mine tigre michelle lively who was an extraordinary artist and performer And sadly, this past weekend, Tigre left this world of their own volition. So I'm sharing this conversation now posthumously to honor and magnify their life, their artistry, their wisdom, and their legacy. I hope that it can serve as a tonic for all those in mourning and a source of inspiration for all those navigating their own artistic, spiritual, shamanic, ancestral, and mythopoetic journeys, which is all of us. If you two are close with Tigre, I encourage you to listen with care. For me, it was both healing and devastating and also profoundly revelatory. We talk about archetypes, mythology, macaroni art, fairies, the artist as shaman, and battling our inner demons. And while we don't explicitly discuss the erotic, When we lived together, we spoke often about how the erotic informs and pulses through our work, which I think is evident in many of their drawings. And while they weren't a stripper in any official sense, they were most certainly a sage. So I feel this conversation is appropriate content within the scope of this podcast. If you didn't have the privilege of knowing Tigre, I highly encourage you to check out their incredible body of work which I will link to in the show notes along with a donation page. And at the end of this episode, I share a poem that I wrote in response to both this conversation and Tigre's passing called The Demon Could Not Be Sated. So thanks for bearing with me. As you can already tell, I'm sure this episode has not been mixed or mastered rather than let perfect be the enemy of good or done. I'm, uh, I'm choosing to make this public uh, in a way so that I can be part of the, I'll say, celebrations that are happening in New Mexico. I wasn't able to be there in person, so this is my small contribution in celebration of Tigre's life. Thanks for being in this audio realm with me. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So... I would like to start by asking you, you had a very serious major in undergrad. I believe it was macaroni art (laughs) concentration. Is this true? Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I would love for you to please expand on your area of focus as a young artistic academic. (laughs) Um, So I uh, went to college at Bennington College and... They are one of those design your own major kind of craft your own educational path schools. Um, So I went there because I've always been interested in doing a lot of different things and blending disciplines and mediums and didn't really want to be penned in to one thing and was really attracted to the school for that reason. So, um, while I was an undergrad, I studied sculpture, I studied modern dance, I studied philosophy, um, I studied painting. My senior thesis ended up being a life-size puppet opera based on Joseph Campbell's monomyth theory, where I built the set in a ring around the audience, so it was like an inverted theater in the round. Mm and built giant puppets and wrote the script and worked with a composer and it was a big fun project but um yeah so i've always been most interested in figuring out how to span different disciplines and keep that balance of being focused while also being true to my various interests and how the work wants to come out Mm -mm. So say more what what 
tools or how, how are you finding that balance when an artist like you can work with so many mediums and an artist like me also wants to, but get serious ADD. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really hard to find the balance. Honestly, a lot of times I kind of end up relying on um, external factors. So most of my living I make by doing large scale sculptures and installations. So that keeps me attached to doing that type of work. Um, most of my performance work I end up doing when a colleague or someone else kind of invites me into a project or, or pulls me towards doing more performance work. Um, my smaller scale two-dimensional stuff usually comes from commissions and things like that. So this isn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily result in the best balance, but the actual fact is usually it's, you know, some external thing, some person. Let's go get that. Yeah, I'll <laughs> Tigre's got supernatural powers. The doors are opening around us. The curtains are flying. We'll get into Tigre's connection to the spirit soon enough. Um, yeah, so I try always, I'm striving towards finding more of a balance. I definitely feel, you know, like I've been wanting to do a new body of paintings recently and it can be hard to find the time to do that or, you know, being in the studio today was really beautiful. Dancing in the studio was really, really beautiful, but I am more likely to do that when somebody kind of invites me into the space, even though the space is in my house. Mm -hmm. um, or we had a lovely collaboration this morning or play session, we should say. Yeah. And it was beautiful and I, I would like to do more of it. Um, but it is, I mean, it's hard. It's always been hard to find the balance because the flip side of that is feeling really scattered. Right. And I know that when I am able to have more of a focus and really decide I'm going to focus on this way of making, um, that work tends to progress more, of course, you know, and, and I generally feel more like something is coming something of substance is coming to fruition. Whereas if I'm always trying to do all of the things, then nothing usually really comes to fruition. Um, but it's an ongoing thing. I don't think I've yet found the perfect balance of all the different things I want to do. I mean, I still like try to make music in the side, you know, when I can, I love doing that. That's always been like a little very private passion thing. Um, yeah, so it's just an ongoing thing. And there's, of course, how all of these different mediums and disciplines inform one another. Right. Right. And so how the flip of that, of course, is being able to move between them and see how they enhance right. those processes. Yeah, totally. I mean, my performance work has definitely influenced my sculpture. My visual art has definitely influenced the type of performance I do. Um, are you able to get specific about some of those ways, either maybe speaking about some projects or things that you were working on simultaneously that at least in hindsight, you could look at yeah. those connections? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the the clearest example for me was um, for some years now, I've done collaborative work with a really amazing performance company called Bad Uncle Sista and specifically with Anastasia Louise Aranaga, who's a very dear friend and collaborator and was my teacher for a while. Um, and the work, the training that I did with them and with Anastasia involves a lot of really intense personal, uh, what we call excavation, really going into the internal space and kind of forging new connections to your own emotions and learning how to be a vessel for a collective um, experience. And 
exploring the grotesque and exploring the tender and these different extremes of human experience. And it also is a very visually rich practice performance style. And I found that the ways of working, the expressions and the body forms and just even my sense of the world that was informed by that practice really has come into my visual work, my sculpture and paintings and things like that to the point where I realized that um, there are some motifs, like kind of some characters that I've been working with for a while. And one of them is this kind of monstrous, uh, kind of demonic seeming character that's very much inspired by um, Southeast Asian, Balinese and Mesoamerican kind of temple guardians, these ferocious beings that are actually benevolent. And while I was training with Bad Uncle Sista, I realized that my expression for my own experience of ultimate joy was also this grimace of this kind of monstrous character. And so that shed a whole different light of my understanding of that character or that archetype. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, And so with Bad Uncle, for example, did you ever create sets for them or masks or movement? I did not ever create, I don't think so. I mean, that process within that company is really collaborative. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, my role was as a performer, as a performative artist, and um, we collaborated, Anastasia and Gala, I brought them on to a project that I did um, called the Salachi, and they came on as a uh, textile fiber artist and as a sound artist, respectively. But my engagement with Bad Uncle Sister was mostly as a performer rather than as a visual artist. And so when you're speaking, for example, about the Balinese, mythic figures and the Mesoamerican. Um, What I heard is from your movement in Bad Uncle, you are sort of discovering certain energies or channeling those um, characters within yourself. Right, yeah. And And then then those would then be reflected in the imagery or the forms that I was creating in my own solitary Mm -hmm. um, visual artwork. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. And um, how did you become a mask maker? Um, well, I started (laughs) making masks, uh, my first experience, I mean, so I've always been really interested in masks. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up in houses that were full of, you know, carved African masks and, you know, Chinese and Japanese masks and things like that. Um, that someone had collected in your home? Yeah. Well, not in my home, but my best friend's parents had art all over the house and Mm -hmm. had all these masks that they had collected from wherever. And, you know, and I grew up going to museums and checking out all the, you know, ethnic exhibits and things like that. I've always been really attracted to masks, but my first experience working with them more creatively was actually at LARPing camp which is live action role playing, which is basically like live action Dungeons and Dragons. And we used a lot of masks in that for character work and things like that. And that was actually was the root of a lot of my professional work now. That's where I first started doing sets and doing kind of larger scale art making and costumes and creating characters and things like that for that camp. And, um, So with masks, we would do workshops and things there. And then when I was in college, I got really into masks and puppetry and studied while I was there. And then everything else since then has been pretty self-taught. Can you elaborate a little on the experience of LARPing for those of us who've never been immersed in that world? Mm -hmm. So LARPing is the best thing ever. Sometimes. Are we doing it right now? Mm, How do you know? I guess if you want to get really meta with it. (laughs) But it's uh, a simulation. yeah, but basically, uh, live action role playing is a combination of um, like fantasy role playing, like you would do in World of Warcraft or Dungeons and Dragons and things like that, 
but embodied in the real world and combined with kind of improvisational theater. Um, and so it's kind of theater without an audience, right? Where there's nobody's watching you. Everybody's just in it. You just are the characters. And my camp, the way we did it, there was a wide range of worlds that we would exist in. So any given person that would create a story or a game, as we called it, it might be like a medieval high fantasy, or it might be sci-fi, or it might be the Wild West, or it might be a dystopian parallel universe, or all types of th- all types of things. And um, and so you get your character. Sometimes you're given a character with a backstory. Sometimes you make up your own character. You have figure out your relationships with other people, and then you have the story. And again, sometimes the story is very explicitly kind of plotted out Mm -hmm. and there are different possible ways for things to go, but there are kind of set scenes and ways that it's supposed to unfold. And sometimes it's totally free for all. And it's just basically a bunch of weird characters in a scenario and anything can happen. So, and so you just, you all create that world together and then someone's like, and action. And now you become the medieval knight. Yeah. Usually there's, one person or a team of people who will craft the specific story of a given session. Usually it's, mm-hmm. you know, we play it for a few hours or for a couple of days or whatever. Um, we don't days do, like without breaking. We've ideally. done it a couple of times. We do a more short form style cause it's more with, um, it's always been specifically like a youth oriented thing. So working with teenagers and things like that in a summer camp format. So there are lots of LARPing groups. I mean, there's a huge range of LARPing groups all over the world that do lots of different styles and formats. And so there are some where they're just in character for days on end or for a week. And it's the same character and they just build over years, these relationships. We tend to do a shorter form where it will be for an afternoon or for an evening or for a couple of days, but we'll break in the middle of the night. And as I said, any given story could be in a different world that could be connected to another story or could be a totally standalone thing. So for example, I wrote two games in my time there and one was like a superhero um, spoof. So it was kind of riffing off of like the Avengers and the Justice League and all that stuff, but it was a comedy game. So all of the characters were totally ridiculous and it was just like a big comedy thing. Um, And I wrote a lot of the characters and would give people characters and their backstories and they would kind of come up with their costumes and things like that. Uh, And then we also, I wrote a game with a friend of mine that was a horror game that was like a zombie game that Mm -hmm. was super realistic. It was 18 and over and we used like walkie talkies to coordinate the zombies to simulate like a swarm when we really only had like a dozen people. Mm -hmm. And whenever somebody got killed, they would be sent back to me and I would quickly do their zombie makeup and send them out again and stuff like that. Um, But yeah. So beyond that sounding like a lot of fun, super fun. um, What spiritual or existential or artistic yearning do you think that LARPing fulfills for people? Oh, that's easy. So the amazing thing about LARPing is it is a way to experience all of these different possible characters, all these different possible archetypes, right? So the idea of archetypes is that each person contains all of them, right? You contain the wise old person and you contain the evil tyrant and you contain the innocent child like each human being contains all of these archetypes usually in our life we have a very limited access to what is accessible what is appropriate for our life you know you are a mother or you are an artist or you are a construction worker you know or you're a politician whatever um in the context of larping you get that cathartic experience of theater but you're really playing this role and you're playing it for yourself and the people you're creating the experience with. So, you know, especially doing this with youth, it's this amazing thing where you take some nerdy outcast 13 year old boy, maybe is somewhere on the spectrum or whatever. And all of a sudden they get to be a King or they get to be 
a knight or they get to be a princess or they get to be a fairy or they get to be a god or a beggar or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you get to explore these different roles and what does it feel like to be the highest status person in the room, Mm -hmm. right? To be a little kid, but be commanding all of these, you know, adults and teenagers or what is it like to be the bottom of the totem pole and to feel that and to understand what it's like to be kicked around or what is it like to have the freedom to really lean into your shadow and be as vicious and maniacal and even violent as some part of you wants to. And there's a tremendous freedom Mm. in that. And you can really lean into these different parts of yourself and it's incredibly empowering. It's, you know, our, our focus as a camp, even though the LARPing and stuff was fun, the point of it was to build, um, self-empowerment to build community to build trust and to build a way of engaging with the world that is focused on play Mm. so that rather than trying to conquer the world or being conquered by it you're really playing with your life and playing with the people that are in your life Mm. i've been reading a lot of deep ecology and also a lot of joanna macy who brings in buddhism so the idea of the self um also the idea of selfhood in that tradition also even the idea of selfhood in the Mogadau tradition, which you and I have both studied, this idea of the self not being static or finite, but a site of flux and indeterminacy, and that we contain multitudes, mm-hmm. right? And so it sounds like what what this is doing, we contain multitudes, and yet in our daily lives, we perform pretty much the same role, right. with the same few roles, with right. the same few people all the time. Right. And so exploring that full expansiveness of self seems to be what you're... What you're getting yeah. that as a function mm-hmm. sounds really powerful. Um, and so talk about the role of archetype in your work. So I really love the idea of archetypes. Um, for those who don't know very briefly, the basic idea of the archetype is that there are all of these kind of symbolic characters or characteristics of different ways that people might be and they're going to be really familiar because we they come up in our stories and things like that and there are things like the old crone or as i said like the tyrant king Mm -hmm. things like that and the idea is that these are are both ancient and contemporary and as you were saying because we contain multitudes there are these different aspects of ourself that the more we can connect with them a deeper, richer understanding we have of ourselves and different points in our lives. You may be in a innocent child role. You may be in a tyrant king role. You may be in an old crone role. And so for me, bringing in these archetypes is really powerful. One of the archetypes I work with a lot is the grandmother. So this idea of this deep, maternal, ancient, wise, um, feminine being that is for me really holds ideas of comfort and guidance and support. And I find that when you create a representation of that, people connect with that in a really deep way, right? Somebody might see that and it evokes all of their connotations around their grandmother or around having an elder that they can rely on or the own deep wisdom within themselves, you know, or the inevitability of becoming an elder or being an ancestor. And so for me, you know, it's, I work with the archetypes that I feel resonant with, right. That feel important or useful to me, um, to connect with. And I put them out in the world in hopes that they spark something for somebody else, you Mm. know, that this, image or form of an old woman will connect with your inner old woman or the, you know, the elders in your life or this complicated, dark, sensual, beautiful, grotesque being will connect with that aspect inside of yourself that Mm. is maybe hard to reconcile with in the day to day. But my belief is that the more we are able to reconcile with these parts of ourselves, the more in harmony we are with ourselves and with each other. Mm. Um, I, I've 
done some mask work with you and you say something really beautiful in the moment that you go to place a mask on your face that you know it will will be in a collective group and you'll say the moment that you look away and you give the person the performer their privacy is when they are putting on and taking off that mask Mm -hmm. and when because when they put it on a god is in the room yeah i'd love for you to talk about that um ritual and then just the idea of quote unquote god we also talk about feeding the gods so maybe you could ideate a little about these ideas and of entities or spirits or just how you think about that. Yeah, totally. I mean, my relationship to ideas of gods and spirits and beings, um, my relationship to these ideas of these kind of extra paranormal, supernatural, mythic beings is complicated. Um, There's a part of me that feels the realness of them, you know, and this idea that there are actual beings and energies and entities outside of our normal perception. And that of course, like the world is so expansive that there are all these forces that, you know, they keep showing up through stories and through mythologies and through religions. Like why would they not be real? You know, and that we just happen to live in a worldview that is, has rationalized them away. Right. So there's a part of me that believes that these there are other beings that exist in some form whether or not they're the way we perceive them to be that there's you know there are these energies and then there's a part of me that sees them as metaphors right as these are are again archetypes that we have access to and being able to externalize them and see them as something that exists outside of us or as a pantheon that exists within us allows us to comprehend it and hold it and have a relationship with it that if it just remained as an abstract idea we wouldn't really be able to engage with it so you know and and for me it's like i create a form of a deity or a deific form now i know there's a part of me that's consciously you know saying, okay, it's going to have this many limbs and it's going to be this tall and it's going to have this color skin and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to make it out of clay or I'm going to make it out of steel. There are all these very real things that I'm watching myself consciously create. But then there's also some part of it that's like, I don't know where these come from. I don't know where these ideas come from, you know, and is there something that is kind of letting itself be made through my hands, whether or not I'm aware of it. And I honestly don't know, and I kind of prefer to stay agnostic around that because the rational part of me won't quite let me go into like a, oh yeah, of course fairies are real world, Mm -hmm. but the dreamer and the romantic in me doesn't want necessarily to live in a world where fairies don't exist. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's complicated, I think. And I don't know that it necessarily has to be pinned down to an either or. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's our own limited vocabulary around it, right? Yeah. Because if you think, like, what is that experience of an idea coming into your mind? Right. Even the most, you know, non-woo-woo of artists or writers or thinkers will talk about just that, the surrealism of that. Right. And if you really get meta-conscious in a moment of your own creative process, you're like, I don't, where, <laughs> where does it come from? Right. Right? And it's, it is a little different than your self-generated thoughts or your monkey mind or even maybe thought feelings that are more centric to your personality Mm -hmm. and so that experience of engagement with some realm of ideas is true right Right. whatever language we want to put around it right yeah yeah i mean i often say that um any name for god is a convenience (laughs) you know because ultimately we're you know the the term ineffable means it is unspeakable Mm. and not because it's forbidden but because it's beyond the scope of words Mm. it's beyond the scope of language so i think you know the idea of spirit or divinity or total reality or whatever you know as soon as we bring it into a conversation and even possibly as soon as you try and hold it in your mind you have to extract a part of it 
mm-hmm. right? Like we can only hold so much in our consciousness at one time. And so any, any word, any name, any framework is ultimately a convenience for the human mind to be able to hold, to say, okay, I can only look at so much of this at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, the same way as, you know, we filter out so much information that we're taking in that we can't consciously hold, right? Like you hear all the sound. If you were to actually hear every sound that your ears are taking in at the same level, you would go crazy, right? We're constantly filtering these things out. And so I think there's a certain way we're doing that with whatever this total reality is, um, which I do, you know, sometimes use the term God or divine or spirit, Um, but those words have so many connotations for different people that, you know, it's like, you're never really talking about the same thing, even if you think you're on the same page, Mm. because what you're thinking about, what your brain can hold is not the same as what somebody else's brain can hold or focus on, you know? Um, what does it mean to feed the gods? Mm. So to me, feeding the gods is that sense of um you know that that there is whatever we want to call it there is some type of energy or some aspect of the world that is deep and that is rich and that is personally resonant for each person and i believe that you know when you the ancients would sacrifice to the gods in order to curry favor, right? In order to to call in boons or blessings or to ward off misfortune. And so you would feed the gods, you would give these sacrifices to the gods to bring them into your life, right? So if you're feeding the god of fertility, you are wanting to bring in, you know, new birth or a good harvest or things like that right and so it's that kind of idea of you're giving energy into what you're wanting to have come into your life so to me the idea of feeding feeding the gods is how do you care for and nourish that which you want to come into your life Mm -hmm. right so as an artist, I can feed my gods by um, caring for myself, you know, making sure that I have the solitude and the quiet time I need, um, staying with mindfulness practices, but also taking in beauty, going into nature, um, listening to music or looking at art or, you know, reading or these things that nourish my inner self and that um, will bring forward the kind of richness that I'm looking for that I want to have in my life, right? Whereas I can also feed the God of anxiety Mm. and watch all of that richness flood out, right? It's like there, there are gods or there are energies that are both, I don't even want to say benevolent or, or malevolent, but, you know, maybe aligned or contrary to what we want to have present in our life, how we want to live, the type of people we want to be. And I think that the more you feed something, the more present it's going to come into your life, you know? Mm. Um, And not necessarily in a way that's, I don't know, I think it gets complicated because there are a lot of people that have very challenging lives. Um, And I think when we talk about things like manifestation or creating your life or taking responsibility for your life, I think it can be really challenging because there's a certain amount of privilege and power that that assumes. And there are a lot of people who are really oppressed or who just live in a system or in a world or in a situation where they don't necessarily have control over everything. And maybe at a fundamental level, maybe they do, but I think it can be really I think there's a there can be a trap where we can get it can kind of become almost victim blamey mm-hmm. for the conditions of somebody's life that they were born into like they haven't done the work of manifesting a better life mm-hmm. um so i try to be really careful around languaging around that um but that being said i do think that we have 
as much agency as we have and we can do our part to, yeah, to nourish and to feed that which we want. If we want beauty or if we want abundance or if we want safety, you know, um, or community, we can do our part to feed that. And, you know, that's the most we can do. Mm. So how do you, let's talk about anxiety, the gods of anxiety and fear. (laughs) Yeah, I know them well. We both know them well. And I'm sure many people listening know them well. Mm -hmm. How do you not feed that God? (laughs) Um, It's really hard. It's really challenging. Um, It definitely helps that I have some pretty amazing people in my life. You know, I have a really strong support network of very kind and wise people that not only love me and support me, but also have so many beautiful words of encouragement or ways to frame and consider my life, you know, that, um, that I find really helpful, you know, and I'm really grateful for, and it's an incredible privilege to have that, um, And, but, you know, it's, it's an ongoing thing, you know, it's, and different things work at different times. So sometimes I just need to like talk to my partner or call my mom, you know, and just like talk things through. Sometimes I just need to talk. Sometimes I need to hear words that maybe I know, but are hard to remember. Sometimes I need to go for a walk. Sometimes I need to move, you know, there are different, different activities or different things that work. But I think one thing that's important and I'm always having to remember this over and relearn it over and over again, but a dear friend of mine told me, uh, some months ago, we were talking about fear and anxiety and depression and things like that. And he was talking about how, instead of always trying to push it away, kind of just relaxing and just letting it come along for the ride. Right. But not necessarily letting it drive. Right. So maybe being able to say like, okay, I see you, you're here. Welcome. Uh, you know, you'll get your chance to speak, but you're not running this meeting. You're not running the show, you know? And because we expend so much effort trying to push it away and that can end up just feeding it Mm -hmm. more. Um, and it's almost like a, how do you maybe relax around it and just let it be there? Um, where do you think it comes from? Where does the anxiety come from? Yeah. Why, why do you think that fear and doubt and anxiety are just seem to be universal parts of the creative process, but then maybe also have different sources for different people? So, um, first of all, the most obvious and kind of cliche answer is that we live in a culture that is incredibly anxiety producing and stress producing right like that's not a surprise to anybody or shouldn't be so what uh so from the beginning of our life we are being constantly i mean you most people enter this world in a bright cold sterile environment being held upside down by some stranger in latex gloves right like And then you're constantly being told all of these things about how you're not good enough or how hard it's going to be or how much you have to strive or all these things, right? So, you know, and and things are only getting more fast-paced and becoming more detached from each other and detached from ourselves. And so I think that's a huge part of it. But, you know, it's that's not new either, Mm. right? Like you read... um, journal entries or historic documents from people, you know, hundreds of years ago, and they're talking about anxiety and melancholy and things like that. I don't know how far back you have to go to find that. And one could argue that it's endemic to this cultural lineage coming from the West, coming from Europe, maybe coming from Mesopotamia, I don't know. Uh, Or it could be something that's endemic to human beings, you know, to, to varying degrees. But Aside from that, 
I think as artists, there's a deeper level. And um, the easiest way to explain that is, uh, again, to reference Joseph Campbell, who often said that contemporary artists play the role that shamans would play Mm. in um, older, more indigenous, more earth-based societies. And part of the shaman's role is to go into other worlds and to face angels and demons and come back with treasure or with medicine for the people, right? Like that's the the Mm. point. So as artists, we have that same role, right? So going back to the fear and anxiety thing, going back to the idea of demons and gods is for me, I don't actually believe that the point of my life or the goal of my life is happiness or joy. Um, I'm not, I would like to be happy. I would like to have a lot of joy in my life. Um, Things are more pleasant that way. I'm usually more productive, but that's not the goal because I know that my work and my calling requires me to go into dark places as well as light places. Mm. It requires me to go into places that are full of fear and anxiety. And it requires me to go to places that are so bright that can also be painful, right? Like to be in a place that's so joyful, that's so um, beaming, you know, that can also be challenging. And so I think as artists, we have that additional layer that beyond all of the anxiety and stress and chaos of the society we live in, we also have a calling to have relationships with demons, right? Mm. To flirt with devils and to acknowledge those archetypes within ourselves, right? Um, And then you layer those things together and you have a culture where we aren't shamans, right? We're not some class that gets to just be outside of whatever. Like we still have to get a paycheck. We still have to, you know, are expected to care for family or at least, you know, have, you know, pay our taxes, whatever. Um, But also go into these other worlds and face these things and bring them back for the culture and bring them back for the people. And it's a hard trip, man. (laughs) Yeah, as I'm hearing you speaking, you know, on the one hand, it sort of really elevates the struggle, right? The, to think about it as this shaman's journey that yeah, the artist is on. Yeah, it becomes this mythological on. journey. Yeah, it's, it's fun sometimes to think like that. <laughs> totally. But then how we experience it is so personal, right? And yeah. so much of the ego gets in the way. And I, I'm wrestling with thinking about shamanism while also uh, recognizing how the ego has such a hold over all of us, but certainly as artists too. And I wonder how you sort of reconcile those two ideas. Um, because I guess I think of a shaman as maybe not selfless, but as, as you're framing going to dark places, you know, doing this for the culture and for the society. And certainly that is what the artist does as well in the work that's produced. And the more that artists can think of that work as a gift to, um, but it's very easy to lose connection to that higher, a mythic purpose, I think. And when the experience feels like we're saying so personal, it's your inner demons. Why is, why is that the battle where the battleground that we so often find ourselves on? Like the, why are we facing inner demons rather than facing like, or how do you just think about, because as you're saying it, yeah, it sounds like, Oh, right. This is an act of service. This is a mythic thing. Right. Right. When we're in it, it's it's not so much going to the depths of like society's collective. I don't know. It feels very personal. The right. self doubt is like self doubt, self fear, yeah. self scathing. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think maybe part of first of all, I I don't know, but <laughs> I think part of get off the show. <laughs> I just lied on my interview to get in. Uh, <laughs> I think part of why is because we aren't shamans, right? We aren't operating in a context where we're going to do this work, you know, for the cause of the people, right? Like we live in a culture that everything is self, Mm. right? Everything is individualized and internalized. So we don't necessarily have 
a framework to say, oh, right, these are the demons that we all know exist, and I'm going to go have interactions with those demons. Everybody has is in their own world. Everybody has their own pantheon. And so, of course, you know, that's what you're going to have access to. Um, also, I don't have extended relationships with shamans, so I'm not going to pretend to know their inner experience, but they are human beings, which right. means they have egos. Right. Um, I would imagine being a practicing shaman in the 21st century is pretty damn hard. Mm. Um, but it was always hard. You know, I mean, I've, I've read stories and, and accountings, you know, and a lot of times you know, shamans or medicine people recount, you know, of gaining their powers through being desperately sick as a child or, you know, through, you know, some type of near fatal accident or something. Right. And it's that process of challenge and it's that process of difficulty and facing death that brings them the skills and the tools that they use to be of service. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, you know, it's like, okay, well maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's how you get it. Right. Is, and it's just that because of the context of our culture that is focused on the individual, that's what we, that's where we are. That's the world we live in and that's what we need to do. Right. And, and again, just with art in general, it's to me, the value of art is about, the artist being deeply rooted in their personal experience, but bringing that and sharing that with other people because it's the work that is super personal, that it's usually the most mm. resonant, right? Like, because, because we're connected, right? Because there are universal experiences because archetypes exist for all people. So if I go into my experience and I face my fears and my anxieties and my self doubt, and I take comfort in, the concept of this deep infinite ancestral grandmother who will just hold me and I make work about that and you see it and you say oh yeah I also have all this turmoil inside of me and I also can connect with this idea of this deep maternal comfort that will care for me and keep me safe and you know and so it's about making that connection between the personal and the universal or the mm. collective. Mm. Yeah, and, and the value in that because I think it's easy either to to berate oneself for this or to receive critique from one's family or peers who maybe don't see it in that way as for artists to receive the critique of um, narcissism or selfishness for those pursuits and for that inner inquiry. Yeah, yeah, I mean... First of all, I think selfishness and narcissism are real, right? So that happens, and it's important to be aware of that and not get, not get caught in that trap because we do live in a very narcissistic culture that promotes it as well as condemns it, right? You're supposed to be selfless, but also all the signals you're given are to constantly focus only on yourself. Um and yeah, and as an artist, you know, it's definitely having these high-minded kind of mythic ideas of service and things like that are, can be really helpful. I think they're true. Mm -hmm. They can also be really helpful and people don't always see that or understand that. I mean, I think, um, it's kind of a question of how do you relate to yourself Right? How do you get clear with yourself? Um, can you look inside and see and say, "Am I being self-centered, or is this really about you know something that's bigger than me?" Or even if it is personal, that's of you know of value and of service. Um, and to a certain extent, like fuck the haters, <laughs> you know. Like I mean, mm -hmm. we can't please everybody, and. To be an artist is to kind of court disaster and the people in your life may or may not agree with you or appreciate it or see it. Well, yeah, I think that I think the important thing is how you see yourself and right. that it's easy to 
also when your pursuit becomes really caught up with your career and your status as it does for all of us because right. that's the world and culture we live in and mm -hmm. there's some necessity to it yeah i think you know what i come back to often for myself is that it the desire and the intention and the vision comes from a really pure place of service right but then the you know the pursuit of it you can lose track of that when it all of that comes into play or yeah. vice versa. Sometimes yeah. it comes from a non-pure place and it's being able to totally, I mean, it's complicated, you know, and it's just, I think it's an ongoing practice, right? It's like, yeah. Uh, a part of me would love to be a, you know, big famous artist. And some of that is ego of wanting to feel important, wanting to leave a legacy, wanting to, you know, leave a mark, all that stuff. Uh, part of it is, you know, wanting to be successful and, you know, have the life that the I resources. want and the resources and be comfortable and all that stuff, you know, but also some of it is like, I want to be able to make the best work I can make. And I can make that work when I have resources, when I have clout, you know, when I can, the, the place between my idea and the fruition and execution of that idea is not bogged down by wondering about how I'm going to pay my rent or how I'm going to eat that day, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and some of the work I want to make is big and it's ambitious and it requires success and it requires resources to support it so that it can reach people, you know? And some of the work I want to make is quiet and intimate and private. And that also requires having the space to be able to take that, right? And, you know, and yeah, I wrestle with that all the time, you mm -hmm. know? It's like, how much of this ambition is ego and how much of this ambition is my soul or my inner calling really wanting something big and to create something big you know for mm -hmm. the world to, mm -hmm. to leave to give well just to switch gears a little bit um and before we close a lot of your work ends up being engaging the public in some way you know you have the salachi piece that is where, where did it end up uh, it's in Fremont, California, in, Fremont. in the Bay Area, but right. just for a couple of years. Okay. Well, just a couple of years. <laughs> um, so many people will get to enjoy that magnificent sculpture, but your work as a performer and particularly your work with masks, you often will venture into the public. And I'd love for you just to speak a little bit about, um, how that work evolved and, you know, tell us, give us a dispatch from the field. <laughs> Oh man. Um, yeah, I love doing that work. I would like to do more of it. Um, so yeah, I guess just real briefly, uh, sometimes I will go out in the, sh in the street and in full character with some type of mask and costume and, um, and just kind of wander around and interact with people. And that also is kind of rooted in the LARPing camp thing, mm -hmm. right? Well, totally. This idea of not performing on a stage, not having this separation between what is life and what is not life. Um, and, but I started doing it. I mean, I've always loved street performance. You know, I grew up in Philly where there's just musicians and jugglers and all kinds of stuff on the street all the time. And, and I grew up surrounded by murals and graffiti and just the idea of living in a world that is suffused with art where art, the art experience is not relegated to a specific room or building or period of time, but the, the serendipity of just something coming into your life to me is really magical. It's like one of the most magical things. And especially where our lives, our daily lives are ever more of a rat race and every more, ever more connected to a screen and to some type of digital world to bring the spontaneous and the creative and the imaginative and the bizarre into somebody's commute to work, you know, is really special. And so I started doing that, uh, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, something like that. And um, started with this character, Whiteface, who I still work with frequently. And that character really evolved organically, and it's a really interesting character. It's kind of beyond gender and beyond age and is both 
kind of ancient and really naive newborn at the same time and really curious and I've taken that character all over the world and all these different types of experiences and I find it really interesting whenever I do that because I always experience this range but the range is always familiar you know where there inevitably there are you know little kids who just want to play and are super excited there are people there are adults who just want to play and are super excited you know who want to just get on the level and just play and and whatever there are people that get really threatened or are threatening you know that find it really it touches something deep in them some fear you know whether it's the abnormality or whatever I mean I've been threatened with knives I've been you know accosted by the police all types of stuff and then you get people that are like get into this weird flirtatious sexual thing right and it's just all these different or people that just totally ignore you right or you're like okay we're on a subway car there's a character sitting right next to you dressed in all white with this weird mask, <laughs> like hobbling around and you're just sitting there on your phone, like, you know, la, la, la. yeah, just like nothing's going on. And, but I find it really interesting to explore that and to see, cause you never necessarily know who's going to react in what kind of way. And so if it's partially is an exploration for me, right. It's mm-hmm. like a partially like a research project, you know, where mm-hmm. I'm kind of like studying the people from inside this mask um but it's also again it's like this gift i see it as a gift you know i see it as this thing of like if you get to you know have your normal day you're going shopping whatever and then all of a sudden you're having this weird theater experience with this character and who knows what their story is and who knows what that brings up you know in your own from your childhood or something like that i think that's really special and i think it's really important that we have spontaneous and unexpected experiences Mm. and especially spontaneous unexpected beautiful experiences Mm -hmm. and instills hope yeah in a huge way i think yeah i think keeping that childlike quality right yeah and reminding us that we do live in that universe of unpredictability and spontaneity and surprise even when life can feel very Closed and narrow, right on cue. Yeah. Hi, Santo. Hi, Santo. That is our all-white, very beautiful, very funny old dog. Santo, go in the other door, babe. Well, Santo's announcing the end of the conversation for now. Yeah. I hope we'll get to continue on another point. Yeah. Keep getting into it all. Yeah, I love that. It's a lifelong conversation with you. (laughs) <laughs> me too yeah i love you and thank you so much for sharing yourself with us i love you too thanks for having me on hmm. i'm sure the tragic irony of that last exchange is lost on no one but i'm going to presence something that tigre's partner jana said in her stunning eulogy at their funeral And it was basically an invitation to be humble enough not to frame this as a tragedy, but instead to trust in the wisdom of Tigre's spirit, to respect the choice that they made, and to honor them in their liberation. And this was a very powerful reframing for me. It doesn't doesn't take away the grief and the pain, but I am doing my best to honor her request and to really believe in the spirit that brought us so much beauty and art and wisdom. So I'm going to share this poem that I wrote. Um, I wrote it before I heard her speak, and I think it perhaps deprives Tigre of their agency in a way. But at the same time, it also recognizes the deep struggle that they spoke about in this conversation and that many of us have experienced with our own demons. So I I consider it a poem of compassion. It's a two-part poem. The first part is called The Demons Could Not Be Sated. The second part, I Choose the Fairies. I think that the second poem does honor Tigre's agency along with the playful levity of their spirit. I fed the god of beauty with my self-adornment. I fed the god of inspiration with my art. I fed the god of abundance with my gratitude. I fed the god of vitality with my dance, the god of wonder with my attention, the god of love with my devotion. Not wanting to be rude, 
I fed the demons, too. A crumb of anxiety, a slice of self-doubt, a morsel of despair. The gods, bellyful and content with my offerings, did not ask for more. But the demons, unsated, came back for my soul. Part 2 About the fairies, you ask? Let us remain agnostic, untethered to our precious ideas about what is and what could be, respectful but dubious of the rational faculties whose calculating logic insists fairies are not real. Because the dreamer in me who conjures glaciers of beauty by skating on the iceless shores of the impossible prefers not to live in a world without fairies. For who am I to claim that the forms I mold from clay and the verses I weave into poems and the songs I sing are not themselves the incantations of fairies? I know not to whom else I am indebted for these gifts only that I must heed their wordless instructions with the tender attention reserved for a child and the holy reverence reserved for a saint. If I must choose between the proven and the felt, between the lone self and a self graced with invisible allies, I choose the fairies. I choose the fairies. I choose the fairies. Tigre, I love you. I know you're dancing with the fairies.